Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya, and we are your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q-Talks, we are talking to John Snyder. John has spent his career in the field of information retrieval and keyword technology with successful exits of the Muscat information search business and recently Grapeshot, which provides brand safety and pre-bit contextual solutions. I think it will be really interesting to hear from John about what he did differently with Grapeshot versus Muscat. Absolutely, and I'm fascinated to hear how selling two companies came about. Hi John, thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. Good morning. If you wouldn't mind starting off telling us a bit about your background, how you started off in the tech industry and then how it grew from there. Well, I was a student at Cambridge. I came up with lots of maths and physics, um, but ended up doing social political science and anthropology. Huh. So it was very strange when I um, left the university. I did a big project where we drove across the Sahara Desert and lived with the Tuareg nomads. And I think what I learned through anthropology is how to read people. Mm. Because if you're looking at an alien culture, it's pretty much like business. There's symbolism, there's power, there's decision-making. So tuned with a sort of anthropological edge, I came back to Cambridge and no one would give me a job. I just had a young daughter and I was like, how do I get a job? You know, I'll go and work for Cambridge Water. And they'd say, oh, you're, you're over qualified you know you're going to come and you're going to leave we're not going to hire you so I remember my anthropology professor saying there's a really good mathematician that's written some really good software so I tracked him down and uh, he kind of said oh lots of people are coming to see me to sort of take my baby my technology away from me so I said well why don't I um, research the application of your software um, you own the intellectual property a hundred percent I will allow you to have 51% of the marketing company and we have to deliver X revenue before um, for me to keep the license to market your software. Mm -hmm. So it was really much giving him the intellectual property, all the control, because he was scared of the control. And, and that's how we started a company called Muscat. So I was just basically a 45% holder of the marketing rights to a piece of software that was actually coded by my ultimately co-founder, Martin Porter, when he was in the computer laboratory in the 80s, 1980s. Wow, that's a really interesting background. So how did you find that transition going from humanities into software? Well, I hinted at a, a sort of mass physics yeah. uh, background. Uh, for some strange reason, I ended up doing 16 O-levels, which was quite a large number at the time. And uh, one of them was computer science, and it was a very emerging sort of field in the world of uh, O-levels and A-levels. So do you think understanding that sort of tech with the computer science background was key in you being able to convince um, the co-founder to give you those marketing rights? I think that um, most startups... Uh, Ideally, the founder team are diametrically opposite. 
so chalk and cheese. So Martin is the type of person who would turn up at breakfast when he stayed with my family and just get out a book and read it. He wouldn't socialize uh, aggressively. He was quite withdrawn. Uh, an expert mathematician brain. Uh, his papers on the Porter Stemmer are the most cited information retrieval papers in the world. Huh. Um, you know, so later on in life when uh, Google would, or Microsoft would reach out for his advice, um, you know, they'd ask, well, Microsoft for Muscat said, oh, you know, M Dr. Porter, can we, can we use one of your publicly published algorithms? And he'd say, yes. And then he would tell me two weeks later and I'd say, hang on, Martin, we're in business together. You need to, you need to tell me about these mm -hmm. things. So I had to cold call Redmond, which was the HQ of Microsoft in Seattle, and from reception, find out who had actually called Martin and then start a commercial relationship <laughs> um, because Martin had no, you know, who called you? Oh, I didn't take a name. So, you know, Martin's brilliant in his science and, and, and software. And my job was to really bridge the power of that technology to how it applies to the market and customer need. And, and where did this early business acumen come from? I would say I'm influenced by my father. So, mm. you know, when you do maths and physics and further maths at school, um, the school says, well, you must do chemistry. And I had a passion for geography. Um, and uh, the school would say, well, no, you have to do all these three subjects to optimize your career. And my dad would say, actually, John, you know, the world changes so fast that the job you're going to do hasn't even been invented yet. So mm. don't worry about that. Just follow your passion. And I think entrepreneurship is very much about passion. I think in the world of Cambridge, um, people might mistake that entrepreneurship is about making money. And I genuinely believe it's about a mission and a purpose and how to change the world. And that is what fuels the culture of a fast growth business. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with money. And you were off to a great start then with Muscat. And how did the company evolve? Well, I found the company, uh, it was growing about uh, 100% year-on-year revenue um, growing. And I had a small sales team, client services. Uh, it was a time of the early stage of the internet. So I, I, I kind of saw the internet before most people. Mm. I remember sitting in the St. John's Innovation Center and, and looking at the Mona Lisa from the Louvre Museum remotely. And I thought, wow, this is powerful. Uh, Bill Gates uh, and even Martin Porter were saying, this internet thing, it will never take off. <laughs> But I realized that HTML was a really good front end to the low-level APIs that uh, Martin Porter had written. He had written really a command line language. So I was able to insert a front end. And uh, I remember the BBC uh, trialing our software, downloading it and becoming a customer without me ever leaving the office. And I thought... That's really amazing. You know, I can sell to the BBC from my office without the cost of going down to London and schmoozing with them. Um, but I actually made a fatal mistake because really business is about building a relationship. Mm. So I should have gone out of my office. I should have gone down to the BBC and I should have upsold them and made 10 times the revenue I did. But at the time, I was very technology excited mm -hmm. and reasonably unaware of how real business works. Mm -hmm. Do you think some of those learnings from Muscat you were able to apply in Grapeshot? Of course. I mean, Grapeshot is co-founded with the same Martin Porter. So we got acquired uh, in 1997, Muscat, and uh, we didn't actually sell the whole company. We sold 70% on what's called a put-call option. But uh, 
they said, we have to lock you in for one year. And I was like, no, 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 this deal's not happening unless you lock me in for two years. And such is the passion for your baby. You don't want to kind of just sell it on. And we actually worked there for four years. Uh, and I actually carved out a new team and built the largest index of the internet at the time. AltaVista had 300 million documents. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a small startup of about eight people called Google. <laughs> um, I used to speak on the same platforms as them. I had 35 people, they had eight. Um, and actually independent research had said our new search engine of half a billion documents was better than AltaVista and better than this uh, little startup called Google. Um, I raised the in interest of about $30 million to do a spin out from that parent and it got blocked uh, by the CEO of the public company that owned Muscat. So at that point, me and Martin resigned and uh, essentially Martin went away and Grape Shot is really a shot at making a better Muscat. Uh, Muscat is like a wine mm -hmm. and uh, Grape Shot was his naming. Nice. Um, so Grape Shot was really another run at building a bigger, better search technology off the back of building at the time the largest index of the internet. Interesting. So what were the what were the key things that were different about Grapeshot? Maybe in terms of not just the tech, but in terms of how you approached that business? Well I think in both Muscat and Grapeshot it's a case of having the technology first and thinking what's the market. So for Muscat we ended up doing search technology for this new phenomenon called websites. Mm -hmm. So we powered Nokia, NASA, US Treasury, even the Royal Family uh, website. Um, and it was a way for people to search. And search was very new. Typically, they were librarians who did Boolean and or operands. So the idea of free text searching was very novel at the time. So with Grapeshot, we had a bigger, better, more powerful search technology. But there's a lot of free uh, search technologies. There's a system called Lucene, for example, that is just free search. So I decided to apply it into a point of the market that I felt was defensible. And the idea was to execute a search um, in milliseconds. So it was about the speed. Mm. So we ended up inserting the decision in what we call real-time advertising. So if someone reads a page on the internet live, mm. We understand the words on that page, and we take all the words, not just two. So the document is the search query, and then it finds the most related advertising that should go on that page. Mm -hmm. And we had to deliver that two million times a second at a tolerance of one millisecond. So the engineering prowess is really the defining capability. And when I set up Grapeshot, I went to old employees and said, hey, the Blues Brothers are back in town. Uh, can you come and join us? And I'm one of them, Chris, was saying, well, John, I've got my own business already and da 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 And then I said, well, how about if we do like a billion transactions or searches a month and then we do a billion a week and then we do a billion a day? And actually, we ended up doing about four billion an hour. Right. And it was that engineering challenge I mm -hmm. think was one of the key motivations okay. and then digital advertising was growing very fast and so we didn't do what we set out to do I wanted to put the technology into lots of vertical markets but typically you have to choose one vertical and really excel and get market dominance so mm -hmm. we achieved that and when we got acquired um, we got acquired because of our prowess in one vertical mm -hmm. I didn't actually want to sell the company I wanted to go and apply the technology to other verticals mm -hmm. um, but that's another story about why you get sold. Yeah, I think we'll get onto that a little bit later. But if we take 
um, what we were talking about slightly earlier and strip it all back in terms of the earliest stages of a startup. So thinking from your experience, maybe at Muscat, Grapeshot, or um, in general, your sort of experience in the entrepreneurship community, um, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a as a co-founder in terms of managing your uh, managing the expectations between between you and your sort of team as well as how you sort of struggled with fu with funding or any other sort of struggles that you faced well muscat was uh, kind of fun because i was a recent graduate out of the university and i go to st john's innovation center mm -hmm. there's a chap called walter herrett at the time managing the center and uh I had to basically rent an office if I wanted to be there. And I said, well, this is impossible. You're trying to attract graduates from the university. They clearly have no money because they've just been students. And so you're failing in your objective. You, you want students to come and set up businesses, but you start with this hurdle called money. So I said, why don't you give me an office rent-free for six months? At which point he did. And then wow. I immediately started subletting the space to uh -huh. earn money. So with his permission, actually. But it was just saying, as an entrepreneur, what resources do you have? Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you use them well? So I sublet the free office space with someone else in my office. Uh, it also helped when visitors came. It looked like there were more people in the office. Um, but I think the most precious thing people have in a startup is time. And I think a lot of people get focused on the product and the technology and don't go out and meet people. Mm -hmm. And I think the real advantage is in large companies, people are locked into lots of meetings. So they don't have the privilege of surveying the market and what could happen. Whereas even as a single startup person, you can go and have 20 meetings in 20 different organizations of a market. Don't take anything as gospel, what you hear, but triangulate the data and the information and get a very up-to-date view on what is happening. Mm -hmm. Then the next uh, important thing is to basically find a partner who's already got 100 years of brand value. So with Muscat, I teamed up with um, uh, some big companies in terms of their brand. With Grapeshot, I specifically started with IBM. Mm -hmm. You know, IBM's big. Yeah. I would end up. Uh, well, with Muscat, it was Reuters, the, the news company. And I went to them and said, well, there must be someone there who's looking at the future of digital. And CD-ROM technology was just coming through. And so I found the Blue Sky Thinker. And then I charged a small fee, £1,000, to write a report on the emerging technologies and the potential impact on Reuters. At which point I could say, well, Reuters is one of my customers. Mm -hmm. Or with Grapeshot. IBM is one of my partners. And all you're doing is you're trying to be a peacock. And instead of being a single individual in St. John's Innovation Center, where no one's heard of your name, understand what you do, you suddenly basically, not steal, but you associate yourself, you associate yourself with mm -hmm. you know, some big brands. Mm -hmm. And it just gives instant credibility. So you need to do the peacock. You have to sort of get your feathers out and look really bigger than you are and more credible than you are. And you don't have to sell products, you just have to get an invoice. And an invoice is often based on consulting. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a great way for that partner to understand the intellectual capital or new ideas you can bring, which in turn are the fruits of your 18 meetings mm. um, around the market. And I'd say the third trick is choose your customers. A lot of startups flounder for kind of anyone who says yes. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm like, no, I need to work with IBM or I need to work with Reuters. And then as an anthropologist, I go and have lots of meetings around the organization. 
so that for any person I'm dealing with, I know more about the politics of his employer mm -hmm. than he does or she does. And that gives me an advantage of feeling important to that relationship because I can go and meet everyone around the organization with my cool new idea. And then I can feed that intel back to my chosen champion within that company. So that's where sort of anthropology and understanding people, power, politics, symbolism, all are important because you don't sell a product. Mm -hmm. You sell trust, confidence in a relationship. That's what drives business. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. How difficult did you find it to finance your, your startups? Um, well, the Muscat was essentially selling 10% to a startup fund, it was called the Cambridge Quantum Fund. Mm -hmm. And I did ask uh, Philip, who was the VC, the venture capitalist, and they only gave 100,000 pounds for 10%. So I raised, you know, I valued the company at like a million pounds. He said he makes his decision within about 20 seconds. Really? So you'll be surprised how much, you know, judging the book by its cover is actually there. It's a kind of gut instinct. Mm -hmm. And as an investor myself, I invest in people. Mm. So there's a lot of people running around with business ideas saying, great technology, good market. Mm. No, you're investing in people. And what you're trying to do is understand how people think and mm. how they solve problems. Mm. Um, so I got that money in. Um, then he introduced Herman Hauser and a few other individuals came in as private investors. I think they got three times their money, and I think my venture capitalist got 10 times his money. Huh. Um, but it was at a time when he was encouraging me to sell. Mm -hmm. Someone basically offered to buy the company. And uh, he said, you know, you're a young man, you've got young children. You know, why don't you sell out and do something again? So uh, I sold prematurely. So with Grapeshot, I had a vision of saying, no, I'm going to really build something and not sell prematurely. Mm -hmm. And, and almost auction, you know, from the best bidders, the company. So as we were approaching what is now known as the exit of Grapeshot, I was actually looking just to get 30% of the money, value of the company to pay back some of the early investors. Mm -hmm. So I, I was really resolute that I wanted to have a proper auction. Mm -hmm. That never happened. So again, I feel uh, Grapeshot um, was sold prematurely. But the investors on average got 15 times their money. Mm -hmm. So that's a 15x return. And in a way, your job as an entrepreneur increasingly becomes less about what you need to do or want to do and more about how do you return shareholder value. Mm -hmm. And you know, I couldn't argue with 15 times return. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you're bound up in a, in a bigger mix of needs mm -hmm. and your investor needs are a big driver and who you take on as your investor is a really important decision. And, and how did you go about that? And did you ever consider starting a startup without any external investment? No, I've, I've, I've got the, the view that um, it's paramount that early on you hand out share options, you share everything, and that's with the investor as well. Mm -hmm. So it's much better to surround yourself with people who know things different to you. Mm -hmm. So you want to go out and get the best staff. Now, early on, you can't attract the best staff. You've just got friends or ex-colleagues. But you've got to have the ability to, as you grow, to attract, like a magnet, better and better people. And that's the value of an investor. An investor, you should never rate on 
money. Mm -hmm. You should rate the investor on what do they bring that can really help you with your plan. Mm -hmm. So early on, you're, you're looking at people who know, let's say, a domestic market. But growing Grape Shot and knowing I want to go to the US, I was starting to really consider what are the US investors or which investors know the US market. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of the day, your board um, aren't people who police you and you're not, your job is not to say, how great am I? I always use my board as, oh, I've got all these problems. How can you help me? You mm -hmm. know? So, you know, which investors are really going to help you with your mission um, is valuable. Money, money is a commodity. Um, you should really aim for the right mix of people. Good advice. As a sort of tech founder in the current day and age, say in, Cam in the Cambridge tech cluster or elsewhere, how do you, as an investor looking at it from the other side, recommend that they differentiate themselves? Because like you said, you had this amazing sort of tech-driven proposition and you went out there to select your customers. Um, but in the current day and age, do you think that is still possible? Or do you think there are other more important factors that a founder needs to think about? We, we look at, you know, the, if we look at the stock market that's been around for centuries, uh, the investment principles, share prices are going up and down, and it's all the business metrics of finance. But ultimately, informed investors are aware of market and needs, but really investing in the management team. And I think it's really important that an entrepreneur is not just passionate and stubborn about an idea, but really aware of how to attract people around him or her and really lead and energize a team forwards. And I've been surprised in hindsight, looking back at the role of culture mm. and the culture of how you bind people together, how you motivate them. I'm a great believer that people don't turn up to work to earn a salary. They need a purpose and a mission. And I think in today's millennial world, purpose and mission become ever more important. Um, people are making choices on how to add value. So I think the worlds of entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship are increasingly aligning to that sense of, you know, we do things for reasons, not about money and earning power. And I think uh, an entrepreneur has to have a real focus on that culture. So as an investor, I'm often looking at what I call the human capital. Mm -hmm. How do the key individuals think? Are they ready to not just take on advice of know-it-all investors who you know, want to give advice of their, of their mistakes yeah. learned hard, the hard way and sharing it? Uh, so how open are they to taking advice, learning, appetite for growth of themselves personally, and the willingness to have A-star people coming in and taking some of their job functions yeah. as they sort of almost might not become the CEO, they might become business development or much more of a tech leader because you're actually building a team to deliver a very clear mission. And that's what I'm investing in is someone who, who knows that it's a journey. You climb Everest, it's high ambition. Mm. But you've got to know there's various stages to go up that mountain and different people come with you at different parts of that journey. Mm, well, that's really interesting. What would you say are the key differences between starting something and then scaling it up? Uh, scaling is really the art of process. Um, if you've got a lot of people on your salary, um, 
you know, payments per month. You know, it's a huge cost. And typically, as, as things grow beyond sort of 30, 35 people, communication uh, suffers. So it's an investment in process ahead of when you need it. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of lubricating that sense of, oh, we're all in this together. This is the purpose. And it's hard when you have offices in different time zones. Um, we ended up with 11 offices from Shanghai and Sydney across to um, New York, Chicago, and and, and down in uh, LA. And uh, as a founder, you know, I was very removed from that because I ended up getting an operational team that basically had to run the focus of each quarter, what the teams are doing. And, uh, and that freed me to do more strategic thinking about the market and where to go. So increasingly, you're delegating out different areas of responsibility to a growing team with much broader shoulders. Mm -hmm. uh, so it becomes a different type of job. Um, I do feel that the startup is the most um, intoxicating because mm -hmm. uh, you know everything's happening. It's fast. It's fluid. And between sort of one and thirty-five people, whether you're a founder or just an employee, um, that sense of purpose and mission is exhilarating. And I think as it gets larger and the process sits in, you, you end up employing slightly different people who also do one or very specific task very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a different hybrid, really. Mm -hmm. So the culture in, some, in how it works changes. But it's important to keep that that core culture alive in terms of its values. And you do that through lots of social activity. So it's not what you do at your desk. It's what you're doing in the coffee room or the kitchen or or out and about uh, in town, in gyms, mm -hmm. entertainment and the like. Was it difficult to recognize when that tr transition was necessary as a founder? I was at a business talk in New York once, and um, it was actually the CEO of Yelp, and he described the feeling that there's a difference between a CEO who is kind of on the wheel of a boat, trying to steer it as it's chopping in and out of the waves, and the CEO who's uh, on the bow of the boat, leaning over and sort of taking the spray of the water on his, in his or her hand, because, you know, they have two very different roles. and. Um, you kind of sense it, you know, depending on your background and your interests as a founder. You've got to work out where can you add premium value relative to everyone else in the team. Uh, it's not about you being the founder and having a preordained right. Um, you've just got to concentrate where you're good and can add shareholder value mm. whilst you employ other people who, who do excellent, much better than you, uh, job functions that make the team robust and successful. Beyond your own experiences in your two companies, how do you view the current landscape both here in Cambridge and also elsewhere in terms of tech startups? It's interesting because when, you know, Grape Shop for me was 13 years. I was I four years unpaid, <laughs> um, you know, started getting paid out of my own business. Uh, 13 years is a long time. Muscat was only about five years. And I had to withdraw from the angel investing community. So I was actually one of the founders of Cambridge Angels. Oh, wow. So uh, so Robert Sansom and others uh, and myself, you know, were part of that starting group. And so after the sale of Grape Shot, I thought, well, I'll go back to Cambridge Angels. And then I realized, wow, A, it's got bigger. B, there's half the people I don't even know, whereas half of the people are old friends. And thirdly, there's a real process and rigor. You know, we've got Emmy and as a sort of member of team, 
filtering companies and there's pre-meetings. So there's more process. And I think there's a lot of deal flow. I'm surprised by um, now the mix of London deal flow and Cambridge deal flow and the sort of fashions, you know, every other software company's AI right at the moment. <laughs> Everyone's got all the labels. And I think there's some high prices being paid in, in both startup and Series A rounds. So it's feeling a bit more sort of American in terms of the price points. Uh, but for me, it comes down to core values of, of team. So I've, I've actually invested in a company that got to the informal stage and even pitched the angels. But privately, I've just put a bit of money into them because I really like the two, the two you know, co-founders. Um, so I think there's a lot more deal flow. Mm -hmm. uh, it's active, obviously, whether it's QTech or uh, the Entrepreneurship Center, as was, um, you know, it's, it's all the infrastructure's there. Uh, but there's a lot of noise as well, so it's harder for the investors to kind of pick through that deal flow. Um, at the Entrepreneurship Center, Tim Minchel was in charge of uh, research. I was in charge of business creation. So we mobilized a mentor program. We had about 100 mentors on our books. I probably worked with about 100 companies a year. About 20 of them we gave really solid service. As, and I was an employee of the university at the time trying to help the entrepreneurship uh, agenda. And uh, I found it very vibrant and exciting, and, and that vibrancy remains. Mm -hmm. um, there's deep tech, there's a lot going on, but I think every company, you know, it's not about the business pitch. It really is about the human capital. Mm. And they've got to work hard at sh revealing with humility, actually, what they're strong at, what they're weak at, and what they're really ready to go and fight for. So it's that passion and mission that has to be transmitted. Uh, not the elegance of a good PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. So it is still possible for tech companies to be successful disruptors in the community? Absolutely. There's, there's change all around us. Yeah. You just have to smell the coffee, as it were, and, and, and know how to mobilize a team to go and attack that opportunity. You've, over the course of your career, interacted with a lot of big companies. Any advice you can give to founders as to how they could interact with big companies? Yeah, I remember uh, one thing we set up in Cambridge, uh, it no longer exists, but it was called the Full Moon Club um, <laughs> because in the Industrial Revolution, when it was a full moon, all the engineers went out into the streets in Birmingham. And that was really the core culture of innovation at the time of the Industrial Revolution was enthusiast meeting. So we did the same with Cambridge Entrepreneurs. Uh, it was just a club for CEOs. And we had working groups where over a dinner we'd discuss Microsoft or you know a, another big company and, and really pick apart our knowledge of how they work as a culture. Basically, most large companies are full of people who have lots of meetings. Um, they move slowly at glacial speeds. And it's very hard for an, an entrepreneur to get some result um, and at the end of the day, I still think you're selling to key individuals. So you are selling to someone who will champion your cause it, and their driver is to change their career. Mm -hmm. So you have to identify which person, what's their position and thinking about their own career and how do you add value to them to make them look good or better amongst their peers. That's the reason you get bought mm -hmm. and you have to understand that cultural phenomenon. And so there's what you might call kingmakers or rainmakers within those large corporations. And they're your buddies. And they're kind of internal entrepreneurs who want to make change. 
and you have to work closely with them as a partnership. So you're not selling to them, mm. you're partnering with them mm. to effect change within their large organization. So assume it's gonna take two years, mm-hmm. work hard on the relationship, uh, and meanwhile, have at least that thousand uh, pound consultancy contract to say, I'm working with IBM, I'm working with Reuters. So keep at it, slow pace, um, be patient, Mm. Uh, but it's a really good lens in which to understand how they see the world and what some of the big issues of their customers. So you can use them as a hop mm. to, to work with that partner to meet their end customers and start. It's, a, it's really how you do market research. Mm-hmm. Mm. So along the lines of interactions with large corporations, I think there's one thing that is worth discussing and that is how you sort of plan your exit strategy so we started mentioning it earlier um, and maybe you've got particular views on how your exits went with Muscat and Grapeshot but are they the same large organizations that you're forming partnerships with are they who you look to for exit? It works like this and um, it's an amusing story Uh, my wife always talks to people on trains I like to sit with my laptop and get my emails done So we're on a train from London to Cambridge and uh, we're sitting opposite a a young lady and uh, she gets talking and says, oh, oh, John, John over here, he's into marketing. (laughs) And it turns out that uh, she was at INSEAD as a business school, was visiting her boyfriend, I I seem to recall, in Cambridge. And Sarah said, well, why don't you meet up with her tomorrow? (laughs) Like, oh, I'm flying out of Stansted. I'm busy. Anyway, I met with her and... um, decided that she had this INSEAD project and it would be helpful to do um, some customer satisfaction surveys of of our grape shop product. She executed the project really well. And so I said, well, I I was out in New York, what I call hunting the gazelles. So these are smaller companies who could buy my product. Mm -hmm. But I knew there were big elephants and there were these big companies. And I knew that some of them might be potential acquirers of grape shop in the long term. So I commissioned her to look at Facebook, Oracle, Adobe. There's one other, uh, Oracle, Facebook, Adobe, and there was one other one. Um, And she did a really comprehensive research, and I paid her good money for it, to sort of outline, you know, who actually had money? What were they trying to buy? Who's on their board? And because she was in SEAD, she could use her network of contacts to kind of go round the back and get some intel. And it's surprising that we ended up selling to one of those companies. Um, And it was almost the glimmer of, you know, thinking about those companies. And it's about that culture, was I commissioned that research and already started to know, well, Adobe had this amount and Oracle had this. And they, you know, they're the sorts of companies that would buy Grapeshot in the end. Um, So you set that seed and we were already integrating with Adobe. Uh, we were very familiar with some of the Oracle people. And so you have to have a relationship with those target mm-hmm. you know, uh, acquirers mm-hmm. and build trust and confidence. And I felt for Grapeshot, we were only early on in that. So I would have waited a year or two for those relationships to mature. And that might have changed the numbers and prices of a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to get to know those companies and be working with them and understand the key decision makers and who's who to optimize the end result of that exit. Mm. As an entrepreneur and investor, what are some of the things you're most excited about at the moment? In terms of technology, um, I see a gaping uh, hole in the bridge between what you might call uh, biotech Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of medical tech. 
and the use of software. So there are companies that have almost got sensors around whether it's live organisms or, you know, sort of assays in a sort of lab. And that whole big data thing, they just don't know how to create software teams uh, that can write code to a certain standard and, and scalable code. Mm -hmm. So it's as if you've got kind of hacking software, but not the professional engineering of software. And I think they underestimate, A, how hard it is to do software, but it's a slightly different culture mm. to the sort of drug discovery. But there's a huge opportunity where drug discovery now needs all that software, sort of AI, big data analysis. Mm -hmm. And there's a lack of skills. Um, but Cambridge has a concentration in both disciplines. Mm -hmm. They're not really culturally fused together. But if I was uh, in, in biotech right now, I'd be working hard to get the best talent in soft, from the software sector into my business mm. because that's that's the new frontier of biotech is how well do you use data learn from data mm. i think we might have to wrap up soon but we've got one final question to end on and that is if you were starting out all over again right from the beginning what would be your advice to your past self that's a deep question treya <laughs> <laughs> I characterize Muscat as being young, naive, full of energy, and learning fast. Mm. And I characterize my time at Grape Shop when I was essentially in my 40s as wiser, um, slower, and really thinking about the strategy of the chess game. So I think, you know, if you're starting up and I was my younger self, I might have said, slow down and really think about the chess game and think about the strategic you know the decisions you make because when you decide to move your piece to the left or the right this is essentially your early startup stage of saying i'm going to spend my time with the ibm mm -hmm. or this customer because i can't do both i'm limited by time and money and i think it's a it's a sit back and really think about the strategy because playing chess and the chess game of startups, that's the excitement. You know, it is really playing a board game and you're moving your pieces and your resources and combining your team. And you really are playing a, a, a sophisticated game of chess. Mm -hmm. You don't know what the market's going to throw at you, uh, that other side of the chess game. Um, but take the time to really think. and Don't just rush. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant advice. Thank you very much for joining us on the show and sharing your words of wisdom. Thanks, John. You're welcome. Thank you. That was a fascinating conversation with John, don't you think? I agree. That was brilliant. John has so much to offer, um, having sold two companies. And I was really interested to hear how that process came about and how he built strategic relationships with some of these companies before he actually then sold the companies. Um, that was something I, I took away from this podcast. Definitely. And I think for me, what stood out was right from the get go, he said that there were that rules didn't apply and to just go for it um, mm. in terms of how how they sort of started both the companies. And I think that was really important in terms of the audacity for founders. Yes. Thanks very much to John for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. 
And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team of QTech, who have all been working very hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a theme or guest or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. Mm-hmm.